The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Jake Tapper of CNN about his terrific new book of historical fiction, The Devil May Dance, the sequel to his prior bestseller, The Hellfire Club. Jake is the host of the weekday show, The Lead with Jake Tapper, and the Sunday morning show, State of the Union. Jake, welcome to That Said. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So, I always love to start these interviews by asking uh, the authors to tell us about themselves, how they started and what their middle ground was and where they are now and where they hope to go. Okay. I'll keep that quick because I don't particularly care to talk about myself, but um, uh, I'm from Philly. Uh, I went to Dartmouth after college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I did a few jobs having to do with PR uh, and ultimately figured out I wanted to be in journalism. And I also was trying to be a cartoonist and a novelist at the same time. Um, but the nonfiction was easier at the time. Not that it was easy, but it was more, the doors were more open. And so I started doing freelance and then I did wrote for Washington city paper full time. And then I switched to salon.com. This is like in the late nineties we're talking about. Ultimately, I started doing TV. I did a show on CNN called Take Five. I liked TV. It was interesting. Um, I started doing more. Uh, I worked very quickly, very briefly for VH1 and for the Sundance channel. By then, I had put together a reel uh, of TV clips while also continuing to write, and ABC News hired me. I was at ABC News for about nine years. I liked it. I did some substitute anchoring while I was there. I liked covering politics. I liked covering big national stories like uh, Hurricane Katrina and the failure of the levees and the Iraq war and politics and more. Um, I was uh, their Obama correspondent. I covered, I was a senior White House correspondent for ABC News. And then ultimately I wanted to be an anchor and uh, CNN offered me my own show. So I joined CNN in 2013. I was one of Zucker's first hires, Jeff Zucker. And um that's it. And now I'm at CNN and I have a co-anchor State of the Union on Sundays with Dana Bash. And I have a two hour show every day and that you've been on. And uh, that's that's my gig. I also have an amazing wife, Jennifer, and two great kids, Alice and Jack. And she's 13 and he's 11. And my parents are still alive. They're in Philly. And I have a brother I'm very close with. And that's that's it. Ooh, it's, a, it's a it's a good autobiography. So we'll look forward to the Jake Tapper autobiography to be written now, written soon. I can't anticipate ever writing an autobiography. Honestly, it's not. And if, and I, I really honestly kind of find it amazing. I could see why somebody at the end of their career would write an autobiography, maybe, but a, a journalist. But generally speaking, the people we tell the stories about are who's important, not us. That's my basic view. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you started in, in the, with the outpost, really. That was your sort of first book. A, a first non- book. I mean, I, I'd written a couple others before that, but the outpost was the first one that was on the bestseller list and that people really paid attention to. Yeah. Which is a very moving story. And in, 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 um, 
it now is a movie and um but it, it seemed like it was the segue for you into historical fiction is, is that right is it was it did it sort of inform you it was it was um it was a bestseller so in innate it was it made me taken seriously as an author um because it got good reviews and and the like but it made it easier to pitch a non-fiction book i mean i'm sorry it made it easier to pitch a to pitch a fiction book but i don't know that it was a, a segue I, I look at it very differently telling the story the true stories of the men and women who served at combat outpost keating or or loved the people who served at combat outpost keating was a meaningful, gut-wrenching, uh, deeply moving, and in some ways upsetting experience. Upsetting because of what all, you know, what they went through, learning what they went through. Whereas writing a novel is is challenging, but it's a lot more fun. So I, I don't really see them. They're very different, I think. So, so Jake. Tell us about your writing process. You've described a process of architects and gardeners and writing 15 minutes. T talk about how you write, if you would. Well, yeah, that's George R.R. R. Martin, uh, the creator of Game of Thrones. He has the architects and gardeners theory of writing, which is just architects are people who do outlines and plan everything ahead of time, whereas gardeners just kind of sit down and see what happens. Um, or go outside and see what happens, I guess, is the metaphor. But I'm definitely an architect. I definitely, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of reading. I write down ideas. Ultimately, I write, uh, I do a lot of little sticky notes of things that are interesting from history or from a time period, because the first two novels I've written are, one takes place in the 50s and one takes place in the 60s. Um, and I take those sticky notes and I put them on a wall and I try to figure out character arcs and story arcs. Then I do an outline based on those sticky notes, based on what I think should happen. And then I sit down and try to write the book. And I, and the, the, the rule I have is when I'm writing, when I have, you know, made a deal with myself and a publisher to engage in a writing, um, you know, to, to engage in a writing project, I, I, I promise myself I'll write for at least 15 minutes a day. Uh, and I do that because anybody can find 15 minutes in any day, even if it's a busy day, you can find 15 minutes in a, you know, over breakfast, lunch, dinner, right before you go to bed. And then often the 15 minutes um, turns into something more. But if it's only 15 minutes, by the end of the week, you have an hour 45 under your belt, and that's three or four pages, and that's something. So that's the rule. It's kind of just like the commitment one would make to getting in shape or doing cardio or keeping in touch with family members or whatever. Mm. And, and do you find that you've latched onto a historical event and then you're going to try to build your characters into it? Or do you have your characters well formulated in your mind and then you're looking for the historical events to insert into the narrative? Well, I, I, I mean, I find the setting first. And then I think about what's going on at that period in time in the real history. So in the first book, it's the McCarthy era and the Eisenhower presidency. In the second book, it's the Rat Pack era and the Kennedy presidency. And then, you know, other historical things going on at the same time. And then I think about what I want the theme of the book about to be about, what I want the subject to be about in addition to the mystery that is the, you know, uh, that thrusts the plot forward. So for the first book, for the Hellfire Club, the basic theme is <clears throat> compromise and how much are you willing to compromise yourself to achieve what you want to achieve. And that came about because, you know, studying Washington, living in Washington, covering Washington, you see so many people come here to do the right thing. Everybody here is the hero of their narrative. And so many people come to Washington, to Congress, to the Pentagon, to journalism, whatever, to, to do good. And then compromise is necessary, obviously, in life. And then the question is, how much are you willing to compromise? And what are you willing to compromise? How far are you willing to compromise? Sometimes people come down here and they end up compromising so much 
in order to achieve, to achieve the good that they wanted to achieve, that ultimately getting to the power that they want in order to do the good that they wanted to do, the, the desire for power becomes supersedes everything else. So that was the theme of the first one. And the second one, The Devil May Dance, is about when you when you try to succeed in this world, sometimes you are put in a position where you are asked to work with or ally yourself with somebody who is of lower moral or ethical standards. And the question is, what happens to you when you partner with somebody like that? So in The Devil May Dance, it's about the Kennedys partnering with the Rat Pack, Sinatra befriending mobsters, the main characters of the book, Charlie and Margaret, who are also the main characters of the first book, Charlie and Margaret, and what what happens to them when they're in Hollywood uh, investigating Sinatra on behalf of Attorney General Kennedy. And The Devil May Dance is a fictitious Sinatra song about this theme, about what happens to you when you dance with the devil. Yeah, yeah. So Charlie and Margaret Mortar um, are two characters they're your protagonists they're they're really in some sense the the best husband and wife team since nick and nora charles as far as i'm concerned um there's a wonderful repartee between them and she's sort of the moral um anchor of, of the family and tell us a little bit about about them how how did how were they created what were you what were you looking for in the voices that they they speak through both books. Well, they're definitely they're definitely based uh, loosely on Nick and Nora uh, Charles uh, from the Thin Man uh, Mysteries, and it's just I had not ever. I'm a big consumer of thrillers and, and mysteries, and I just haven't seen a husband wife duo really uh, as the main protagonists of a book. It's usually a single male, hardened former army lots of romance in his books, but that's not the life I lead. I'm a happily married guy. And um, so I, I just wondered what it would be like to, to write a, a protagonist where it's two protagonists. And, and I mean, Charlie is kind of the main character, but Margaret is right there with him. And she has her own adventures as he has his. Um, and uh, I just thought it would be interesting to try to do that because it's more reflective of the life I lead and the lives that a lot of people I know lead, which is they are not swashbuckling spies like James Bond running around and betting whomever they want. It, they are in deeply committed relationships that are not always easy. Uh, so I just thought that that would be an interesting way to do it. And, and, more reflective of my life, more reflective of what I would want to read, more reflective of the fact that, you know, strong women are a big part of my life. Yeah. And, and I mean, she's a postdoc I mean, she's a zoologist. He's a PTSD sort of suffering world, world war two vent. And so each has their strengths and weaknesses, which I think you lay out well and use to advance the narrative. I think is yeah they're both moral people they're both good people but Charlie definitely has had a rougher go um both because his um of his experience in World War II and because his dad is a political deal maker Winston Martyr uh an operative in New York Margaret is a zoologist who had a purer upbringing, although she did have tragedy as well. Her father was killed in a uh, an, an aircraft accident when they were trying to create um, blimps um, in the in the twenties and thirties. So they both have a degree of, of of tragedy and loss in their lives, but they're you know they're deeply in love. But they get in these adventures and they're thrust into these worlds of compromise, of seediness and shadiness, whether it's the world of Washington, D.C., um, and the cocktail party circuit there, and deals being made, or the Rat Pack, the world of Hollywood in 1962, uh, which is also a place of its own compromises. Yeah, but what's nice about them, and we'll talk about the, the, 
the narrative of, of the book in, 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 a, in a moment. But what's nice about them is that they each have, as you say, their own pluses and minuses, and they use them um, both to advance the narrative, but the interaction between them, there, there are strains in the marriage by virtue of the compromises or the conditions that they find themselves in. And I think I read it as a, as a person who's about to be married 40 years in September. Oh, wow. And I know that's great. Yeah. It's been, it's been wonderful. Um, and you see the, the pulls and the, and the pushes in any relationship. And I think you give voice to that nicely, which is, well, they fight something, which is something Jake. They fight. Right. I mean, they fight. I mean, and there's a, there's a part of the book where she's kind of giving it, she's not giving him the silent treatment, but they're not really talking because his drinking is getting out of control and she disapproves and he feels her disapproval uh, and resents it. And, you know, one of the things, so when you write fiction and nonfiction uh, you try to have an arc, right. You know, the old, the old uh, three act, standard of act one, chase your hero up a tree, act two, throw rocks at your hero in the tree, act three, get your hero out of the tree. So everything has an arc. um, And I try to have their relationship also have an arc in both books, in both the Hellfire Club and uh, the Devil May Dance. Um, Because their relationship is, is a character in the book as well their closeness and you want them to I hope readers want them to succeed, want them to make it as a couple. Um, But it takes effort and you see that it does take effort and it's not, and that's, I mean, as you know, better than I being married almost 40 years, it's not a knock on marriage or a spouse, but it's work. It's, I mean, you could, you could have a roommate for 40 years. It would take work. Um, and certainly marriage is a lot more than having a roommate. So what I was interested in is the voice that you give to to these characters as a writer of fiction versus as a, as a journalist. And, and it's, so there, there are things where, for example, I I make a note to myself of what you wrote, one or two lines that I, I, I like particularly where, Margaret is commenting on Washington politicians and you write, quote, their public images were as fragile as they were phony. And Charlie, in remarking on the state of the intellect of the nation's capital, he says, quote, it wasn't that they weren't smart. It was just that they thought they were smarter than they actually were. Two two great lines, I thought. And I thought, well, is this Jake Tapper, the writer of fiction, or is this Jake Tapper, the journalist, you know, sort of uh, putting his voice through his characters? Well, those are definitely thoughts I've had (laughs) Um, (laughs) about not everybody, but about some people in Washington. Uh, And you live here and you understand that. You've probably experienced it and thought it yourself. There There are a lot of smart people in this town. And there are a lot of people who think they are a lot smarter than they are. Um, and that is always kind of an interesting experience. There are, by the way, a lot of people who are exactly as smart as they think they are and know their limitations and are better members of Congress or better journalists, <clears throat> better anchors, better lobbyists, whatever, better activists, because they know their limitations. But certainly there are a lot of people... Charlie, in that point, I think he's talking about uh, the CIA uh, when he says he's talking about a CIA. I believe he's talking about CIA officers, not that they weren't smart. Maybe he's talking about the Kennedy administration. He's, I think he's talking broadly about Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things, one of the subplots in the book is obviously in 1962, the big story in terms of the Kennedy um presidency is Cuba. And there's a lot going on having to do with Cuba. And it sounds trifling now, perhaps, but this is the height of the Cold War. And the Soviets were allied with Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs. And these are things that consume the Kennedy presidency. And what the Kennedy team want to do in Cuba is something that 
Charlie's a, a Republican. He's a, he's a, he's an Eisenhower Republican, but he's a Republican. And um, when I say he's an Eisenhower Republican, I don't just mean he's a, he's a moderate. I, because uh, Eisenhower was moderate-ish, but he was he was conservative in a lot of ways. But Eisenhower was also somebody who was very wary of the need to exert U.S. military power, and Charlie is somebody who feels that way, um, because of his experience in World War II, and his belief that some things are worth fighting for, but they have to be picked carefully. I mean, Eisenhower didn't get us into any wars. He got us out of one, right? He got us out of Korea. So um, anyway, so, but the, yes, that observation is one that I have definitely thought in dealing with any number of administrations, ranging from the Clinton to the Bush to the Obama to the Trump, now the Biden administrations, where these are smart people, but maybe they think they're smarter than they are. Yeah. Not that that means I think I'm smarter than them. More that I don't think I have answers, and I think I'm a lot more, I'm a lot less sure of what, like, for instance, is it a good idea or a bad idea to withdraw troops from Afghanistan? I don't know. I, I, I have tremendous humility about that. I do not know. I have no idea. Well-earned humility, I should say. But there are a lot of people who, like, are very determined. They know. And I just don't know how people feel that way, how people can come to that conclusion. I, I don't have that level of, of confidence either. I, I was in a trial once where a judge remarked to my co-counsel, not to me, but it could have been to me. He, his comment was, your problem is you've been educated beyond your intelligence. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. Um, and then the, the, the Margaret observation about images being as fragile as they are phony is something that I think is definitely I've also observed in both Washington and Hollywood, which is a lot of people pretending to be something that they are not, whether it's, well, it's not just Washington or Hollywood, but I mean, politics or anything really. But I mean, look at Jerry Falwell Jr. is a perfect example of that. Somebody who heads up a Christian college and proclaims himself to be pious and a messenger of God in his own way. I don't judge what he does in his personal life, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't square with what he's been preaching. Yeah, and Margaret is saying it in the context of these gavel-banging, hard, um, questioning sort of politicians, and then when the, the lights go off and they're yeah. in a private setting, they're as fragile and, and, and um, insecure as, as, as the next person. And she said that dichotomy, that phony dichotomy is just enough to make you throw up. Well, and that's certainly something I've experienced a lot, people proclaiming themselves to be incredibly confident and sure of themselves. And then at the end of the day, you see their behavior. I mean, look, you, you see this from members of Congress today. I mean, people just like begging for attention in the most pathetic, needy ways that are so basic that it wouldn't even be like a first-year PhD in, in, you know, psychology program because it's so obvious and naked and the need is so pathetic, but you see it and it's just like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's complicated as they, as, as they say to, to, to observe the public and then the private um, dichotomy uh, in these people and the, the injury that they can uh, inflict um, perhaps by virtue of their own insecurities versus Absolutely. Uh, real thoughtful policy uh, positions. But I don't want to talk about politics so much as I want to talk about the, these these books. I, and I should say, Jake, that I read um, The Devil May Dance first. I can confess to not having read um, the, the first book when it, when, when it came out. But as soon as I finished the, the second book, I got the first book and wanted to know who these people were and, and Charlie and, and Margaret and how you created them and where we were going um, with them. So why don't we turn to the Devil May Dance? We talked a little bit about what the storyline is, but flesh it out a little bit. What 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 is it that interested you um, completely about the, the Kennedys and, and, and Sinatra and the, and the Rat Pack period? So um, I was... Uh 
for the devil may dance i had i had i was doing book promotion and the book was uh it hit the bestseller list which was you know just a huge achievement and and very you know i worked very hard on that book i've been thinking about it for like a decade before i actually sat down and wrote it trying to figure out how to make it work i must have started and stopped it 10 times setting it in different eras at one point it was set during the second continental congress at one point it was set in modern day but then ultimately um i decided to do it in the kennedy era i mean sorry in the uh, eisenhower and mccarthy era but I, so I was doing book promotion on that, and, and so the book was selling. So I'm like, okay, maybe they'll let me write another one. Um, and, somebody, and I had heard this story. I had just read it about this true story that – so we all know that the Rat Pack campaigned for Kennedy in 1960, for President Kennedy. And, and the Rat Pack is, just for the audience, it's, it's Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, Dean Martin – that, that, that most famous. Yeah, Shirley MacLaine. It was, I mean, honestly, the truth of the matter, like when you, they did the first Ocean's Eleven movie. So think about the, the, and it's not a very good movie, so you don't have to go see it. But if you go see the remake, the Ocean's Eleven movie by Steven Soderbergh, starring Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Matt Damon, imagine that movie. Imagine if they were all best friends and they hung out all the time and they could sing. Like that is the level of, celebrity wattage that we're talking about just an incredible panoply of stars and talent so the rat pack um threw their weight behind president just then senator kennedy president kennedy and kennedy won it was a very narrow election and then sinatra who was kind of the head of the rat pack uh decided that of course President Kennedy would come stay with him on a California visit. Not a crazy idea. Uh, Senator Kennedy had stayed with him. They were friends. Um, they hung out. Kennedy owed his election in some ways to Sinatra. I don't want to spoil too much, but it's in the book. But so anyway, he started having his compound in Rancho Mirage, which is near Palm Springs, about two hours outside of L.A. He started having it prepared for the visit. Phone lines installed, a press room, extra bedrooms, a helipad. And meanwhile, at the same time, Attorney General Robert Kennedy was prosecuting organized crime. He'd been going after organized crime. And it became very clear that Sinatra was buddies with some of these mobsters, and so Attorney General Kennedy, again, this is the real story. This is not my book. Attorney General Kennedy had to decide, do I insult one of the biggest stars in the world who helped get my brother elected? Or do I let my brother sleep in a bed where mobsters have slept, literally and or figuratively? And that true story, I, when I heard it, I was like, wow, that's the next setting. That's the setting for my next book. Right. And... Again, I, I don't want to spoil the book because it's it's a good read and you don't want to know what happens in the end. But Margaret and Charlie are going out to California uh, during a congressional research to investigate the level of relationship between Sinatra and, and organized crime. Yeah, like, Attorney General that, Kennedy. That sort, that sort of jumps off, right? Yeah, the premise of the book is Attorney General Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, basically blackmails Charlie to go investigate Sinatra to see how mobbed up he really is, how close the relationships really are. And Charlie goes out under the guise of being a consultant during the congressional recess, a consultant on the filming of the Manchurian candidate, which was going on at the same time, because Charlie's a, both a politician and a war hero. He serves as a consultant and that's the premise. And then he, you know, now they have this challenge, Charlie and Margaret, to become friends with the Rat Pack and figure out what's really going on. Um, and then while they're out there, you know, all sorts of mysteries and hijink, hijinks ensue. Yeah. What, what, I, what struck me, one of the things that struck me, and there are a lot of sub-themes that we'll talk about in a minute, but one of them is this question of who killed um, JFK. And, and you wrote, you have a line in the book where you write, 
Joseph Kennedy, the, the, the father, who's the one who really asks the Rat Pack to, to help um, uh, John Kennedy. He says, Joe Kennedy asks us to enlist made guys, organized crime, to help his son win. And then after he does, Bobby goes after the same guys. So you have this notion of, um, you know, it struck me because no one knows who was behind the death of, of, of JFK, but, but it raises clearly, I thought, and nicely, this question of were they involved in this death because they were betrayed? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but it is true that Ambassador Kennedy met with Sinatra and asked for help in winning key supporters that would help his son win primaries. I don't know what John or Robert Kennedy knew of that, but it is true. And look, I mean, to win labor union support in 1960, you needed to talk to organized crime. I mean, it's just a fact. It's, it's, you know, you needed their support and because organized crime was affiliated with a lot of labor unions, especially in cities. So that's true. Um, whether or not the mob killed JFK, I don't know, but it is true that the mob helped JFK and then Robert Kennedy went after the mob. Yeah, no, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you try to answer the question, but what I loved about this aspect of the book is that it's, it gives you this aha moment to, to think about. Well, and also, I mean, again, I don't, I have no idea. I mean, I really don't. I'm not, I'm not a, I think there are a lot of questions about the Kennedy assassination, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist about it. Um, you know, although there was a select committee investigation into the assassinations of King Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, and they did basically conclude that there were a lot more questions and answers about it. But that said, um, I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby and Jack Ruby was mobbed up. I mean, you know, the stuff isn't really all that complicated in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a second major theme, which for me was as important a theme as the compromising one's values and what, choices you make when the devil presents you these Faustian bargains. The second and important theme for me um, in The Devil May Dance was race. um, Tell us, let's go back just a little bit, because you you talk, I think, poignantly about race in in both books through the voice of Isaiah Street. Um, Isaiah Street is a fictitious black congressman. Uh, from Chicago, a Tuskegee Airman, World War II hero, that becomes a friend of Charlie's. Early on in the Hellfire Club, they're both World War II heroes, and um, he is also like a, he's also a very heroic character in both books. Um, and I love Isaiah Street. Um, I'm tempted to write a book just about Isaiah Street, but I don't know, to be completely candid, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to write a book all about Isaiah Street in this in this era. I'm not sure how kosher that is. But in any case, um, race is, is an important thing to address, I think, in the 50s and 60s because racism was so prevalent, far more so than today. Not to say that it's not a problem today. Of course it is. But... Um, one of the things I wanted to get across in both books was how racist society was in the 50s and 60s. One of the things that was also one of the discoveries I made while doing research that I was not really aware of ahead of time was how ahead of the curve Sinatra was. Sinatra, who is definitely depicted in the book as a flawed and complicated character and a chauvinist and a sexist, um, was way ahead of the Kennedys, even when it came to civil rights. He was a crusader for civil rights, uh, both publicly and privately. He, you know, he would lobby to make sure that um, Las Vegas would be integrated hotels and that his band members 
were paid the same if they were regardless of their color. So that was really interesting to me too. And Sammy Davis Jr., who is a character in the book, and his appreciation for Frank in that regard, I thought was an important layer to add uh, because so much of the Rat Pack's treatment of Sammy Davis Jr. for jokes was on its face racist. Yeah. I mean, their their whole routine of the singing of White Christmas and making a nod toward uh, Sammy Davis Jr. or uh, Sammy Davis Jr. became Jewish. Um, he converted and they would talk about jujitsu. You write about this um, in, in, in the book. Um, and so they had this public sort of scoffing or, or criticizing or embarrassing of him. And yet behind the scenes here, Sinatra making sure that he got his, you know, as, as he says, uh, as you say that you say of Sinatra, that he, he said, this cat has done more for civil rights than your Kennedy's uh, put together. Which is true at the time. At the, at, I mean, <clears throat> In many ways. Um, now, Robert Kennedy became a civil rights hero later in the decade, and John F. Kennedy certainly did a lot. But that's a a, a character saying that, not me. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Sinatra was really very progressive on these issues. Um, now he later became far more conservative, Sinatra, um, and I think in real life, a lot of that was because of the breakup that he has with the Kennedys that's depicted fictionally, but actually happened uh, in my book, but actually happened in real life, which is he was a very progressive Democrat. His mom was an FDR activist and, and uh, his mom performed abortions in uh, Hoboken, Hoboken, New Jersey. I mean, they were very liberal, but um yeah, by the by the 80s, uh, as you and I are old enough to remember, Sinatra was serenading the Reagans. He had become a conservative Republican. Yeah, and, and you don't know whether that's because of the broken relationship with the Kennedys. Um, that he just, It had to have been. Yeah. I mean, it had to have been because, I mean, you know, by the same token, the Democratic Party of 1980 was not the Democratic Party of 1960, right? I mean, they were... In 1960, um, the Democratic Party was more conservative than it is than it is today, and than it was in 1980. And remember, civil rights heroes like Jackie Robinson endorsed Nixon over Kennedy. Um, so who knows? But I certainly think it would be naive to think that Sinatra's uh, evolution in his political thinking wasn't influenced by his very public breakup with the Kennedys. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about in this race theme that we're on is is Sammy Davis Jr. He's a he's an important character in the book in in, in, in on this race thread. And I remember when I was in high school in, in 1965, I, I read Yes I Can his his autobiography. Yeah. And and tell us a little bit because you, you you refer to his military career and and and. I think it's important for people to understand what Sammy Davis Jr. went through because he was he was assaulted. He was beaten by his white soul by white soldiers. That's why his nose was flat. Um, because his nose had been broken in the army. He had experienced unconscionable racism. Um, Sammy Davis Jr., another guy, he got a lot of heat for endorsing and embracing Nixon during the Nixon years. Another guy, complicated guy, but this is in the book, but, you know, Sammy Davis Jr., his exposure to the Kennedys was, they were not progressive. Sammy Davis Jr.'s wife uh, was white, and the Kennedy family asked him to delay his wedding. He was supposed to be married in, I think, uh, summer or fall of 1960, and they asked him to delay his wedding until after the election so that it wouldn't cause the campaign embarrassment because he was marrying a white woman. And he did, they did delay it. And then he was not invited to perform at the inaugural ball 
uh, even though there were uh, lots of people, you know, lot, other members of the Rat Pack performed and other black entertainers like Sidney Poitier performed, but they didn't have white wives. So there was a real racism or at least um, an acquiescence to racism by the Kennedys uh, that was an important part of Sammy Davis Jr.'s experience. Again, I don't think, but this is, these are just, this doesn't, I don't think, spoil the plot of the book or your, or anybody's understanding, uh, or enjoyment of the book, but these are just some of the, some of the facts and, and details that I, that I learned when writing it. Yeah. And I think it's your attention to the historical detail that brings life to the fictional part of the narrative. Because I think most readers, regardless of age, would be surprised to learn everything I just said. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, I'm older than you substantially. And, and, and so I remember a lot of this stuff because I was living it. But when I reread it, I thought, oh, right. All right. I forgot about that. Well, it's tough when things change so much. And when, you know, after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Jackie got to work on the Camelot mystique and myth and this idea of uh, John F. Kennedy is this great crusading progressive hero. And then obviously more so his brother, because they were so tragically assassinated, um, you know, it has shaded a lot of the realities of their actual records, which um, are certainly, you know, laudable in many ways, but also there's a lot more to it than now, when you're when you're young, you're kind of like taught a certain way of looking at the world that the Kennedys were progressive heroes, and it's more complicated than that, especially in 1962. Yeah, I, I mean, if you read Passage to Power, is that it? The Carroll book on on Lyndon Johnson taking over after uh, the Kennedy assassination, you see how much Johnson has to do to give effect to the civil rights legislation that sort of Kennedy, in some senses, is credited with. LBJ is LBJ achieved a great much much more uh, for civil rights than John F Kennedy did. Then John, yeah, then John F Kennedy I think could have. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Now you could say, well, he was struck down. He was only president for a couple of years, all that stuff. But I don't even know that he would have. Anyway, yeah, LBJ has a has a very proud civil rights record. The war is another matter. Yep. So uh, a third major theme, and this is where Margaret gives um, you a lot of voice, is misogyny, sexism. The, the so you, you know what I like again. What I like about the book is that your characters are giving voice to issues that are taking place in real time in your book in the 1950s and the 1960s, but their messages um, transfer all the way through to today. They, 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 and so talk a little bit about the misogyny and, 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 and what you were hoping Margaret's voice would articulate in, in this. Sure. And I, I hope people understand, like, these are themes. These are not, you know, it's, it's, it's presented in a much more reader-friendly way than the word misogyny, for example, does not appear in the book. Oh, but yeah. that's my, that's my, that's my, word. sorry. But yeah, you cannot write about Hollywood in 1962 without depicting a very uh, sexist world. Um, and also, as you know, a world that is really not all that different from what exists today uh, in terms of uh, how actresses are regarded, in terms of how young women are treated. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 look, Margaret is ahead of her time in terms of her feminist thought. I'm not sure that, uh, I don't know how many women uh, would voice it as strongly as Margaret does, but I'm sure a lot of women thought that it was unfair how unequal society was. But the point was more, um, if you're going to take Margaret, who's a strong character and a zoologist and an ambitious person, um, and thrust her into the world of the Rat Pack in 1962, what is she going to see? What is she going to experience? And what is Charlie going to experience and how different are their experiences going to be? And they're quite different. They're quite different. Again, without spoiling anything, Charlie experiences the temptations of being part of the Rat Pack 
temporarily. And Margaret is running around uh, exploring the seamier side of Hollywood and trying to, well, I don't want to, again, you know, and, and just exploring the seamier side of Hollywood. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was Margaret or Margaret in conversation um, with another woman in uh, in the book. And um, the line, again, that I wrote down, uh, I, I quoted it, and it says, speaking of the, 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 the men in, of Hollywood, it said, the men in this town should be put in a hospital for the criminally insane, not given Oscars. <laughs> um, I think that's Charlotte Good. Uh, Charlotte Good is a is a tabloid reporter, a fictitious tabloid reporter, who Margaret befriends and who serves as a kind of guide to Margaret uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and I think that I think that they are when she, when Charlotte says it, I believe it's Charlotte. Um, they are at the premiere of Lolita, which is a movie that came out in 1962, um, which is about an old man's lust for a teenage girl. Uh, And, you know, based on the Vladimir Nabokov novel and was not sold to the public with any sense of irony, although it was a satire. Um, And the poor actress who was subjected to this role, like had a horrible experience. Anyway, that's, uh, it was just all too, too rich. It was right there. I mean, the movie actually did come out in 1962. Um, and look, I mean, haven't you looked at Hollywood in the last five years since the Harvey Weinstein story broke and all these other stories and thought to yourself, these people are sick. Not all of them, obviously, not even most of them, but a lot of them. Well, and, and you, you have a character wonderfully named Ichi Meyer, um, who, who, you know, sort of, and, and, and Les Wolf, these are, these are Weinstein, Epstein, um, yeah. characters. Ichi Meyer, who works, uh, for a studio and, uh, and Les Wolf, uh, who also works for a studio, um, who are power players who, uh, who could, who could exist today and in fact are based on people who do exist today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so I said that what I think the brilliance, there are a lot of things that I think are brilliant about the book, but the brilliance of the book is that the, the messaging, the racism, the, the, the sexism, the, the um, themes uh, carry from then through to, to today. Um, and they make an important point. Um, well, I hope so, but I hope more importantly, I hope people enjoy it. I mean, that's, oh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, yeah. it's a fun read. But when you, when you put the book down, um, you think there's a lot to learn here too. Well, but the thing is you don't have to like make up some guy with a space laser that wants to like, you know, extract the world's uh, mineral resources to find a bad guy. There are a bunch of them right now in Hollywood and we've been covering them for five years, six years. So why not just take them and make Itchy Meyer and Les Wolf based on all sorts of characters that we've been reading about. Uh, and, and why not, why not just make actual bad guys into fictitious bad guys with actual crimes that they have been getting away with. And we've been reading about them get away with. Yeah. Well, and you have that with, with, with uh, the, the Congressman Strongfellow in the, in the, in the, in the, in the first book. Yeah. yeah poor, poor Congress. So Congressman Strongfellow, uh, is based on a, a real congressman uh, named Stringfellow right. who who lied about being a, a World War II hero. He was just a complete liar. He's a he's a minor-ish character in um, the Hellfire Club, but he's based on a real guy. And that's why I have, at the end of uh, both books, source notes so that people can see what's real and what's not real and what's based on fact and what's fictitious. Um, because... I had so much fun. Like, I did not know that Doug Stringfellow, I'd never heard of Congressman Doug Stringfellow, but this was a Utah congressman in in that era, in the 50s, who had completely made up his World War II heroism and was elected to Congress. And then ultimately he was exposed. Um, But in in the Hellfire Club, I changed, you know, I, I, I fictionalized him a little bit, but I wanted people to know about the real story. So I put that in the source notes at the end of the book, which for 
for research nerds like you and me, uh, hopefully is, is, is fun so that they can, I just heard from a friend of mine who, um, was listening to the Hellfire Club on audio during a drive. And he said, and every night at the mot- at whatever motel he was staying at, he would then go on Wikipedia because he didn't know that there were source notes because he's doing the book on tape. Uh, but he would go on to Wikipedia to find out what's true and what's not true about Margaret Chase Smith and the, the Puerto Rican terrorists attacking the Capitol and, you know, all these things that really happened. Yeah. Well, I think importantly, um, it's a, um, Mossville, Louisiana, uh, features, um, yep. in, in, in the book. And this, this whole polyvinyl chloride, um, poisoning is something that we learn later on. But, but again, it's, it's a theme that, that fits well into the fiction of the book, but then tells us, let's not forget, um, this really uh, happened. Yeah. Things really happened that people really died. Um, the the there's a subtext in or a subplot or not really even a subplot in the hellfire club about chemical weapons because the 50s is when the chemical weapons program in the united states really starts to boom and so yeah I, there are a number of incidents described in the book that are fictionalized or referred to but are also true stories of uh disasters because of uh chemical weapons and the like uh, in the United States in that time. Yeah. So the, the last major theme that I wanted to talk about, um, and I'm trying to stay Jake away from sort of the, the storyline and it says, I don't want to spoil yeah. the, the, the ending. So I want to talk about things thematically. Um, but it, the, the, the last theme I want to talk about is sort of your take on the media, because uh, in both books, um, you talk about uh, the role of media in, in, in Hellfire, for example, you write, um, quote, that there are a few solid reporters here and there, but it seems like too much of what is in the news media today is spoon fed to journalists by various government factions with various agendas. And in, and in, um, in Devil, you expose then for the first time, perhaps the, this catch and kill, which we became right. aware of with the National Enquirer. So you talk about your brethren and yourself, perhaps, in in in, in the media and, and the coverage of, of events. And I think that was great for the narrative, but important thematically. Well, obviously, I have a much higher opinion of journalism than uh, the characters in both of my novels. Um, and I thought it would be a bit much to have, you know, Woodward and Bernstein as the heroes of the book, um, given the fact that the main characters are uh, a congressman and his wife, uh, Sinatra, people who wouldn't necessarily think highly of the press. Um, although I do think Charlotte Good is a good character and an honorable person. She's, she's basically a failed screenwriter, and that's why she's doing tabloid reporting. Um, I, yeah, look, I mean, like narratively, I thought it was important to talk about the flaws of the news media in both books, because the perspectives would be that of people who did not think the news media were that great, uh, politicians and entertainers, but that's not my point of view. My point of view is, I think that journalists are for the most part, doing a good job and trying their best, trying our best. And, um, but that's separate. This is fiction, you know? Right. But, but again, um, the, 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 the narrative works wonderfully. I don't want to tell anybody what the ending is. I want them to go read both of these, these books, but as you read it, you'll see these themes that, that, that are universal um, and, and ever present in our, in our, in our lives. And it gives us food for thought. One thing that um, was clear during the, there's, I read a, there's a biography of Joe McCarthy that I read. It was written in 1952. So two years before he was censured by the Senate by Jack Anderson. And it's a great book. It's a great biography, really eviscerates McCarthy. There's a whole chapter about how the media fell asleep and just took McCarthy's word for it when he was lying and making up numbers and, 
of people who are card-carrying communists at the State Department or whatever. And the, the entire chapter could have been written about the Trump era, the beginning of the Trump era, about journalists just regurgitating the lies. Now, I don't think I did that, but I think a lot of us did. And certainly I don't think I was aggressive enough early on. Um, but it's an important lesson uh, that we didn't learn. The, the other night I was watching um, The Manchurian Candidate, which is about the 50s, about Joe McCarthy, but it's uh, I, the, that film was made and depicted in the second book as well. And there's a scene where the Angela Lansbury character talks to the Joe McCarthy character in The Manchurian Candidate, this is in the movie, saying basically talking about how easy it is for to get reporters to repeat whatever nonsense he wanted to repeat. So, I mean, a lot of the same problems that existed in the media in the fifties that were being pointed out in Manchurian candidate in the sixties exist today. And uh, I thought it was worth noting that. Yeah. And, and, and in hellfire, um, the parallels between McCarthy and the coverage of McCarthy and, how McCarthy behaved, you know, the parallels to the, the Trump era to me were apparent and, and, and well thought out in, 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 in the fiction that you write. Yeah. As they say, history doesn't um, repeat itself, but it rhymes. And there's certainly, there's been a lot of rhyming uh, yeah. in the last five years from the McCarthy era. So, um, Charlie and Margaret start in the fifties. They're young in their, in their early thirties, um, yeah. in the, in the, um, in the devil, they're in their, uh, forties in, in, in the 1960s. So book three, I hope there's a book three. We'll find I them think in, so. yeah. in the seventies. I think so. I think so. And, um, but I'm also interested in maybe having their son, Dwight, whose nickname is Ike, and having him maybe be more of a leading character. He's just a little boy in The Devil May Dance, and he doesn't exist in The Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club, Margaret's pregnant with their first kid, Lucy. But I think it would be interesting to have Charlie and Margaret in a third book, but also have Lucy and Ike um, as characters, and maybe even have Lucy and Ike as main characters, because they would be in their late teens, early twenties in the late seventies. And that might be more enjoyable. I say this as somebody in my fifties, it might be more enjoyable to have two young, uh, two young people running around having an, an adventure and solving a mystery than in, than in, than two saddled people who'd rather be at home watching TV. And stuff. Oh, right. So, you know, I, I was uh, thinking, well, if I were right, if, if Jake Tapper calls me up and says, look, Zeldin, I, I can't write this third book. You, you write it. Um, not going to happen. Um, no. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, so Charlie is a New York City Republican. I think in the 1970s, there are no, no, there are no Republicans yeah. representing New York City. Yeah. So um, he's lost his election. In my in my mind, he's no, like, I agree. He wouldn't be. He wouldn't be in. I mean, John Lindsay is mayor. He's a, he's a Republican mayor. It's not like it's impossible to be a Republican in New York City, right? Giuliani did it, and Le, John Lindsay did it. But the question of whether or not Charlie would still be a member of Congress as a Republican representing New York after Watergate is a serious question, and that is one I would have to grapple with. Would Charlie have lost his seat? Would he have? somehow led the charge against Nixon so that he saved his seat the way that Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, uh, father. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. The way his father, yeah. uh, was against Nixon. I don't know. I have to figure that out. I yeah. definitely have to figure that, but you're right. It's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be much tougher for a, an Eisenhower slash Rockefeller slash Dewey Republican to hold on to his congressional seat in increasingly liberal Manhattan in the late seventies, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I had I had Charlie in my mind back at Columbia. He's either given up or lost his seat, and and um, Dwight Ike is either a White House intern or or, or a Hill page. No, he would be. Remember, he's they're Republicans, so 
what I'm thinking is. No, no, but remember, if, depending on what it is, because it could be during the Nixon presidency. You could. No, it would be late seventies. It would be late seventies. So, um, because I don't. Yeah, it would be the late seventies. And um, what I'm thinking right now, and this could change. What I'm thinking right now is, what if Ike Martyr works at the Republican National Committee? in the very early years of the Carter administration. So the, our, the Republican Party is, is worried they're, that they're never going to win another election because of, of Watergate and Carter just won. And that puts Ike in a position of where the Republican Party is trying to figure out what it is, which might be resonant, which might be a good kind of like subtext. Yeah, rolling up into the fourth book on the uh, Reagan. Uh, but I do also think you're right that it would be good to have, and maybe it would be Lucy or maybe it would be somebody that they encounter, but somebody should be a White House intern in the Carter White House. Yeah. I, I Absolutely. So last question, because we're at the end of the time and I'm very respectful of, of your time. Yeah, I got to go sign some books and then get into work. Well, I, I, all I remember um, most about you at, at CNN was how hard you worked. So I do work hard. Yeah, I don't want to take you away from it. But turning to the president, to the present, and yeah. your day job, what 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 would Charlie be thinking about what we're seeing today? Well, I think actually, and this was not purposeful, but I think actually, although it might have been subconscious, there's a lot about the subtext of The Devil May Dance that is resonant to today because so much of it is about what happens to you when you dance with the devil. And by that, I don't mean the actual devil. I mean somebody who can help you, but they are of a lower moral ethical fiber. And that's about the Kennedys befriending the Rat Pack or Sinatra befriending mobsters or Charlie befriending the Rat Pack or whatever. There's a whole bunch of how does it change you? And I think we have, we see today how it is changing the modern Republican Party, um, whether it is Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell or any number of individuals who have completely changed what they stand for, what the party stands for, because of their alliance with, with Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, you have people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger who are saying, what are you doing? Um, like that, we can't change who we are because you, because of the whims of this one politician. And I think that is what Charlie would be. I think Charlie would be looking at Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and thinking, those are my people. Those are Republicans who stand for something. And I can't believe that people are selling out who they are or what they stood for. I mean, just the whole idea that we're watching this slow motion attempt to subvert the next election through stripping secretaries of state of their power or trying to defeat them or changing election laws and all this stuff. So that next time, this is what Liz Cheney is warning people about. They're going to try to steal the election again next time, but next time they'll be better situated. And I think that's horrifying. And I think that that's something that, that Charlie and Margaret would both find horrifying. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that Charlie would, would not make that deal with the devil. And if he did, I think Margaret leaves him. Well, Margaret's a progressive. So, I mean, yeah, Margaret would have left him long ago. But, but, she, but no, I mean, Charlie, I mean, I mean, Charlie would be a, he was an Eisenhower Republican. So he probably would be at this point a McCain Republican, you know. Or, or a Liz Cheney Republican, or a Adam Kinzinger Republican. I, Charlie and Kinzinger actually kind of remind, Kinzinger reminds me a little bit of Charlie in that way, and that Kinzinger is a war hero and a conservative Republican who takes strong ethical stands on, on issues. Yeah. They're great characters, as I said at the outset. Since Nick and Nora Charles, I don't think you've seen a husband and wife. That's very nice for you to say. Thank you so much. So Jake Topper, this has been wonderful um, speaking with you. Thank you so much. The, the, the current book is The Devil May Dance, but I, I would read, if you haven't, The Hellfire Club and then The Devil May Dance. Read them both. Um, it reads. Thank you so much. It's so nice to see you again. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jake.
That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.